Hey everybody, hope you're well. Welcome back to To The Point. Been off a few days, apologize for that, but back locked and loaded today. It's it's a weird time in the sports calendar because there's the NBA draft, which is tomorrow night, which I'm looking forward to. Lots to talk about on Friday when it comes to the NBA draft. But the NHL is on hiatus. NFL, you're waiting for it to ramp up. You got the NBA and the NHL, which are quiet. So baseball is in full bloom. I've talked about this before. I like watching the sport, but the sport is horrible at marketing. At marketing stars, at getting people excited. Shohei Otani and a bunch of others. The Cincinnati Reds are a fun story right now. But again, you're trying to find storylines where I think other sports do a better job of uncovering them. And that's going to be a task for me this summer, just to find storylines in baseball and talk about them because I'm enjoying the Major League Baseball season. If you're a Blue Jays fan, you're probably not enjoying it all that much because their definition of a mediocre team right now, they lose every other game. They seemingly lose by eight runs one game every week. They did get a win last night in front of seemingly 400 people at Marlins Park. They play in about 10 minutes here in an early afternoon start. But we'll talk some baseball today. I want to get into some NHL notes that I've missed. Oliver ekman Larson buyout. The uh, Sheldon Keefe is staying in Toronto, which is interesting to me. Travis Green has a new job, not a head coach, but he has a new job. And some UFC thoughts. I think the UFC is a problem in the middleweight division. I'm going to talk about that as well as um, chat about some fights that were announced over the last few days. But I want to begin with the suspension that was announced last Friday now, which was John Morant being suspended 25 games by the National Basketball Association for being in a video with a gun. This was his second time that he was caught with a firearm and the NBA wanted to make him pay after talking with him. And he gets a 25-game suspension. Obviously, you're missing 25 out of 82 games. Brian Windhorst reported it's going to cost him over $9 million, this suspension. So it is a severe one, to say the least. Here's the thing. If you listen to me regularly, you know I hate guns. I do. I don't see a purpose for them other than law enforcement having them. People having them in their homes, I'm not okay with. I don't agree with it. I think it's stupid. I hate firearms. They don't do anything but kill people. And yes, people have to pull the trigger. There's a lot of crazy people out there, and that's why there's more and more mental health professionals than there ever has been in the history of human existence. But that is beyond the point. A human being cannot kill somebody with a punch it's well easier to stop somebody from punching somebody 14 times and killing them than with a gun. You see someone in the street, he's getting punched. Okay, you go throw him off. It's over. You shoot somebody, there isn't that reaction time. I'm not going to go through the list of reasons why I hate it, but I do. But I can look at a situation and have two different takeaways. John Morant, two different gun-related instances. Do I think John Morant is a stupid person? Yeah, I do. I do. You're an NBA player. You are worth so much money. And yet you choose to hang out with people. You choose to have firearms. You choose to put yourself in precarious situations. 
that is somebody that's immature. That is somebody that has not figured out life yet, quite frankly. And it's not the way I'd approach it. Or I think a lot of people would approach life, but that's the way he's doing it. He's got to learn his lessons. So yes, he's stupid. Yes, he's handled it poorly. All that is true. But do I think John Morant should have been suspended 25 games? I do not. I don't think John Morant should have been suspended any games. Here's why. He is being suspended for being on, being caught on camera on a video with a firearm. In the United States, it is not illegal to carry a firearm if it is registered. If you registered for a gun, you can carry it on your person. Again, hate the rule, find it stupid, but that is the rule. That is the law. And apparently it was a registered gun. He's allowed to have that in his person. He can carry it in his vehicle. And he had it out. Should he have? No. But he did, and it isn't a crime to do it. So he is being suspended in part for something that is not considered a crime in the United States. So if it's not a crime, if he's not breaking the law, why is he being punished? Stupid people get away with stuff every day. We all make stupid decisions. Are we getting locked up for every one we make? Different things we say, different things we choose to do. I don't agree with, I just don't see the correlation to he's not committing a crime, he's technically not doing anything wrong, but you know what, let's lock him up. No. To me, you need, if this was some, a gun went off where it was in a public setting where he could have hurt people, okay, but he's in a vehicle. He's in a small area with another person, nothing happened. Could it have gone wrong? Yes. But a lot of situations can go wrong. For instance, anytime an athlete, anytime a public figure goes anywhere, there's a possibility that it could go wrong. An athlete, James Harden, I'm just going to, one that comes to mind. He's notorious for loving strip clubs. His jersey is retired in a Houston strip club. If he goes to that strip club and a person comes up to him and they get into a physical altercation and it goes awry and that person gets hurt and he gets assaulted, James Harden could go to jail for that because he committed a crime and it's a risk for, to going there because you don't know who else is going to be there. You don't know what the temperature of the situation is going to be. So why go? Why put yourself in that situation? Why do this? Why do that? Those are the questions that you have to ask yourself. He would have committed a crime. John Morant has not committed a crime. So if James Harden goes into a, a strip club and he beats the hell out of somebody because he gets in his face and there's an argument, how many game suspension is he getting? I just think it's a dangerous precedent to give somebody a 25 game suspension for something he did for, for what, what did he do wrong? Have a gun out. Okay. 
But in the United States, you can. Again, stupid. Don't agree with it. But that is the law. You can carry a, a firearm. You cannot assault somebody. That is a crime. So if he suspended 25 games for not committing a crime, how many games are you getting for committing a crime in the NBA? The Players Association say they don't agree with the, with the punishment. I don't blame them. I don't blame them. Because there's been nothing like this. He didn't commit a crime. He didn't hurt anybody. He didn't threaten anybody. He was acting stupid. Like young people do. Like I've done in my past. With a gun? No. But have I done stupid stuff? Yes. And I'm 24. I'll be 25 in September. I'm sure I'm going to do some stupid stuff before I'm in the ground. Like we all do. But in this particular situation, what did he do wrong? Because half of the United States would believe he did nothing wrong. He had a gut. The United States love guns like Canada loves maple syrup. They can't have enough of them. Keep feeding it. Keep giving us more firearms. Ship them in from Mexico, wherever you're getting them. We want them. Canada, we love maple syrup. We like bears and otters and all this stupid shit that we put on our stuff. They get firearms. Land of the free. Guns. Woo! Shoot people. Okay. That is their culture. Whether it is a correct culture, it's not, but that is the culture that they presently have. That is the climate that the United States is living in. There was a shooting, if you didn't know this, after the Denver Nuggets won, the night of the, the six people were killed. There was a shooting in Baltimore Monday during Juneteenth. Two shootings, those are just the reported ones, in the last five days in the United States. So, if the NBA's memo is we don't want our players to have a gun, I get that. I get that, Adam Silver. I understand that point of view. I understand why you want to do that. But at the same time, the country that your sport exists in is going completely counter to what you want. The world that you're living in is different than the one you're trying to create. And I understand wanting change. I understand wanting to change the fabric of the world that you live in. I just don't know if it can happen. And I don't understand setting the precedent here because he's not the only NBA player. He's not the only athlete that has a gun. He might be the only idiot that is that has it present, that would put it on video. Maybe that's where he separates himself from the rest. But this is more on the political parties in the United States to do something about weapons, to do something to stop this, to not allow people to have firearms. It's not gonna happen. I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, Joe Biden, the president right now, he's not going to make that change because half of your voting 
base, or maybe even more, because I think there are Democrats who would want to carry a weapon as well, will hate you. They will hate you because they view that as taking away their freedoms. They view that as taking away what makes them American, their rights. So John Morant is basically suspended for stupidity. If you're going to suspend somebody for stupidity, I don't agree with it being 25 games because he did not commit a crime. He did not do anything horrible. If you want this behavior to change, it is not on Adam Silver. It is not on John Morant, in my opinion, because one person, one person standing up to, to changing what they've done or what they believe in will not create change. It takes a village. It takes people in power to control this. Political leaders to put this into motion. And through all of it, clearly the United States doesn't care. And based on the rules that we live in, that is what we have to go off. That is how you set your precedent. That is how you, to me, how you decide on these rulings is what are the rules and what did he do wrong in this situation? Now, is the NBA mad that they told him stop having a gun and then he's got one out? Yeah. He disobeyed them. Okay. Who hasn't disobeyed a person of authority before? The commissioner is in fact a pseudo parent to these players because he's your boss, which when you're a kid, whether you see it at the time or not, your parents are your boss. They're authority, they're authority figures. They control what you can and can't do. And they steer the direction of your life in, in a lot of cases. And that's a good thing and a bad thing for others. It was a great thing for me. I was fortunate. But there are times in life where you don't want to do what your parents say. You don't want to listen to your parents. You, you drink a beer a little younger than you should. You smoke, you smoke weed. You do whatever. You go out. You drive your car without a license. Whatever stupid stuff you did. And it's, it's fun. You hope you don't get caught. And if you get caught, are the, are the repercussions a 25-game suspension? It's usually about a week and then you get over it. It's usually about a week and then people are like, okay, we were mad at your son, daughter, whomever. But it's, yeah, you, time served. It, it's over. You were bad. But we know you're going to do this again because you're a kid. Now, you hope John Morant is more mature than a little kid. But this happens in, you know, into your mid-20s because you're still their child. You're still the person that they look want to look after. Right? And I just think, in this case, John Morant is still a stupid kid. He might be a parent. He might, and he's... John Moran's 23. He's younger than me. I feel like I've been the same person for a long time. 
but I've, I'm a different kind of cat than most people my age or growing up because I just, I knew who I was. I think he's still searching for his identity. I still thinking, still think he's searching for who John Morant is. Oftentimes that's a profession, but I think in this case, it's who he is as a human being, what he values, what's important to him. What does he, what does he want to do? What, how does he want to represent himself to the radius? I think he's searching for that. And I think it's a difficult conversation. In the case for, I can only view a prison through my own situation. I didn't have to struggle. I didn't have to go through a whole lot when it comes to, you know, social dynamics, uh, money, because I came from parents that work really hard and I never really thought about it as a kid. I think about it more and more now where I knew different kids my age went through different experience than I did. And I'm fortunate that I didn't have to. John Morant grew up with a pretty middle-class family, but his family did well for themselves. But I also think it's okay to look at it and say, he's playing with a lot of players that went through a different life. And maybe he feels like he needs to join that part of, you know, the gang scene, things of that nature, because he was fortunate enough to avoid it. And it's odd to think that you want to jump from the safe prism to the, you know, shark infested waters. But again, it's jumping into a pond that you weren't allowed to go in or that you weren't in before. And I think that's the, the key thing here is John needs to find himself. And he needs to work on himself and he needs to figure it out because he's blowing a lot of money. He's blowing his reputation. All that can be true. But I don't agree with the 25 game suspension. Because quite frankly, John Morant not playing basketball might be the worst thing for his life right now. Because the way his mind is, the way he's centered, having more free time is a dangerous thing because who knows what he's going to do with that free time? Who knows what's going to happen? I don't know. I think he needs to be focused on something. I need, think he needs to be completely on board with this part of his life. With basketball. With being a parent. With having a set schedule. Being out 25 games to start next season, he's not going to have that. Sitting watching games, but the rest of the time he's not playing. It's a lot of ample time to do crazy stuff. I just hope this offseason he gets some help. And that he can come back in 2023, 2024, a better version of himself. That's all, that's all every human being striving to do is come back a better person than you were the day before. At least that's what I'm doing. There's also a big trade in the NBA. Bradley Beal, formerly of the Washington Wizards, 30 years old, was dealt to the Phoenix Suns for 
Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, a pair of second-round picks, and a pick swap. Bradley Beal's only played for the Washington Wizards. He's played in 40 playoff games, and he's had two seasons in the NBA where he's averaged close to 30 points. He's a really good scorer, and he joins the Phoenix Suns, where he will play with Kevin Durant, one of the best scorers in NBA history, and Devin Booker, who's a damn good scorer in his own right. Now, on the surface, Phoenix didn't give up much because they didn't have any first-round picks left. They traded them all to get Kevin Durant from Brooklyn last February. So you get a really good score. So you have, now you have a three-headed monster in Brooklyn. Sorry, in Phoenix. Used to be a three-headed monster in Brooklyn. I, I look at the Phoenix Suns now, Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, and I think they all do the same thing. They all score. Bradley Beal, Kevin Durant, both really good mid-range shooters. They both like to attack. But I look at their head coach, Frank Vogel. I look at their team in general and I say it's lacking two things. Defense and depth. Bradley Beal is not a good defender. Kevin Durant's going to be 35. He's had multiple surgeries on his knees and things of that nature. He's not the defender that he used to be. And Devin Booker has never been a great defender in the NBA. So Bridges, who is a good defender, he's gone. Cam Johnson, who is a better defender than anybody on this roster, is gone. It's just, I look around and say, what's, who's going to be guarding people on this team? Who's going to stop the opposition? Okay, you have three guys that can score, but can you stop the other team at the other end? Plus, you have Beal and Durant, who have both been injury-prone the last couple of years. So there's that concern as well. With this trade, I still don't think the Phoenix Suns are better than the Denver Nuggets. Denver still has the best player in the league, in Nicole Jokic. They still have Aaron Gordon locked up long-term. Still have Michael Porter Jr. We'll have Jamal Murray back. And they'll need to fill out their bench. Bruce Brown will likely be getting a pay raise. I doubt he returns to Denver, but you never know. Christian Braun will be entering his second season, so he'll be back with the Nuggets. You want some better backup center depth behind Jokic so he doesn't have to play that big of minutes. But I, I look at the Phoenix team and I say, who's playing minutes for them? Okagi, who was a starter for them last year, is a free agent. He's a UFA. Is Torrey Craig coming back? Is TJ Warren coming back where they were acquired in the Kevin Durant trade? So I just think there's a lot of things up in the air with the Phoenix Suns. Bradley Beal is a fun player. He's a fun guy to have. But I'll tell you, I think the Washington Wizards are thrilled that they got this deal done. They didn't get a whole lot from him, but they couldn't expect to. Bradley Beal in two seasons is going to be making $60 million. That's where salaries are going in the NBA. He's going to be making $60 million, one of the worst contracts in the NBA. And they didn't want to pay that. So they get him off the books. They only take on Shamit. Chris Paul will likely either be traded or bought out. So leave that money for one year. But again, you're moving out salary from your roster. They're in a complete rebuild mode. 
the Washington Wizards. They knew they had to get rid of Bradley Beal. They loved them there forever, but it's time to move on. Your team has been finishing 12th in the East for far too long, and they've clearly decided to go in a different direction. For Chris Paul, zero chance he stays in Washington. Because as I just said, they're not going to win. If he goes to the Clippers, I realize a reunion. I'm sure Chris, I think Chris Paul is a home in Los Angeles. So it would make sense for him to go back. But the Clippers would be full of old folks home players. Chris Paul is 38. Injury prone all the time. Will play 55 games if they're lucky, whoever he plays for this year. Kawhi Leonard, Mr. Can't play back-to-backs. Mr. I can't play in the playoffs. I'm going to miss half the season. Paul George, who's gets seemingly getting more and more injured as the years go by. So there's your three best players out for half the year. If the Clippers bring in Chris Paul, they are not winning anything. The Clippers' experiment with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George has been a colossal disaster. Tyron Lue, their head coach, has one year left on his deal. I think he wants to play it out, get that money, and get the hell out of there. Because he knows coaching this team, he's not going to win. And I think he'll be looked at around the league very fondly. He's won a championship in Cleveland. He took the Clippers job. But it has not been fun for him, for sure. And Chris Ball is a Hall of Famer. He's going to be looked at as one of the best point guards to ever play the game. But he's 38 years old and he's not what he used to be. So I said this before. I don't think he – I realized why he'd want to go back to Los Angeles. Tail end of his career. Who wouldn't want to live in L.A.? The weather. I think the Boston Celtics if, – if Chris Ball really wants to win a championship, the Boston Celtics are the best team for him. Take a buyout from the Wizards and take league minimum – to go play for the Celtics. Allow them the flexibility to build around you. They're still going to have Jalen Brown, they still have Jason Tatum, and they need a floor general. They need somebody in crunch time to dribble the basketball because their two best players simply can't. Jalen Brown likes to bounce the ball off his toe and out of bounds, and Jason Tatum crunches in the big moments. Chris Paul can distribute the basketball to these guys. It changes your team. Malcolm Brogdon is a scoring point guard. He is not a distributor. That is not what he's going to be doing. Marcus Smart is a two guard, not a point guard. Again, different, and I'd explore getting rid of Marcus Smart this offseason because I don't think he fits that team anymore. I doubt it happens, but to me, Chris Paul to the Celtics makes the most sense because they need him, and I think for him, he wants a championship. He doesn't want to be in the Carl Malone, the John Stockton, the Charles Barkley conversation of the greatest players to never win a title, which he will be if he if his career keeps going the way it is. He's been to one finals in 18 years with Phoenix a few years ago, and they lost to Milwaukee. That's it for Chris Paul. Great passer, great floor general, this, that, the other. New Orleans, Clippers, Phoenix, Oklahoma City for a brief period. 
and he'll be looked at fondly, a great teammate, this, that, and the other. But he didn't win. And in pro sports, that is what, at the end of the day, that's what you're judged on, is did you win? Do you have a championship? Do you have a ring? And Chris Paul at this point does not. If I'm Chris Paul, either go back to the Phoenix Suns, take a buyout and see if they take you back. Because they could use him too, because they still don't have a I don't see a true point guard on that team unless Devin Booker morphs into it with this new look team. Which he may. He's a he's a decent passer. Or go to the Boston Celtics. Because you only got a few years left. And you're not playing elite basketball anymore, but you're still playing decent basketball for a 38-year-old. The Clippers aren't going to get you a championship. I don't even think they get you into title conversation. They didn't win a round last year. With that group, I don't trust them to do it again. The Lakers. I don't love the fit. LeBron's still the point guard. He can say he wants to play off ball, but he's never really morphed into that. He's never accepted playing off ball. So I think he'll be the point guard until he retires. Could he come off the bench? Could he be that guy for the for the Lakers on a cheap deal? I pref- I would go with that over go to the Clippers, but I'm not sure the Lakers want Chris Paul. They already got an, an older player that's not as good as he once was. I think he has options, but I'm not sure how much he's going to explore the ones that truly make sense. So I get it. Playing in Boston, nobody's a huge fan of it in the NBA in particular. And there's a reason for that, which I don't even need to say. You can figure that one out pretty quick. Go, go read the Bill Russell book and you'll kind of figure out why playing in Boston for somebody that is the same skin tone as Chris Paul wouldn't be that much fun. But they're a perennial title contender. They have a good, they have good young talent, and they can't get over the hump. And you could help them. Do you want to suck it up for one year and live in Boston? He could do it. That list for me for Chris Paul, I would go one. I would go one the Celtics. I would go two the Phoenix Suns. He goes back on a small deal one year after the buyout and 3-0 go the Lakers because the Clippers you aren't going to win and what's the point of going there if you don't have a chance to win I just don't trust that core to be healthy ever and maybe he'd go to a young team there's rumors he, you know, the Spurs might want Chris Paul, which would help Victor Wembanyama when he gets drafted tomorrow night. Possibility as well. The Raptors, I they had some surprising news yesterday. Gary Trent opted in to his contract. He'll be playing next year with the Raptors, and the team is going to explore a long-term extension with the player this summer. Here is why, if you are an NHL player, you must be furious with the salary cap system 
and just the way that the financials in the NBA work compared to your league. So the highest paid player in the National Hockey League is Nathan McKinnon. He makes $12.6 million, which is a lot of money, but it's also not a lot of money when I start talking about this. Gary Trent, who opted in, he's eligible to sign a contract extension this summer for $24 plus million a season. Gary Trent Jr. is a spot-up three-point shooter, a decent shooter, not, not great, just okay player, cannot create his own shot, a below-average defender, and he is eligible to sign a $24 million extension. Gary Trent might as well be Michael Bunting. He's average. You're happy if you have him, but you're fine if he leaves. And he's going to be making... $12 million more than the highest paid player in the National Hockey League. Well, maybe until Matthews signs his extension for 15. <gasps> Sorry, Leafs fans. But Gary Trent Jr., an average, and I mean average and I'm being nice, average NBA player. It's crazy. The way the salaries in the NBA are going... Now, there's two reasons for this. Owners are willing to pay luxury tax, but also the NBA does a better job at marketing their sport than the NHL. The NBA gets better ratings. People care about the NBA more than they care about the NHL. It's hard to hear in Canada, but it's just the truth. Worldwide, it's not close. It's like soccer is more popular than American football. It's hard for me to stomach, but it is. I can admit it. Don't get it, but I. it's the truth, nonetheless. But Gary Trent will return to the Raptors. What does Fred Van Fleet do? Does he want to return to the Raptors? Does he go elsewhere? Does he join Nick Nurse in Philly? Draymond Green opted out of his contract with the Warriors, so he's a free agent. He's in Paris with LeBron right now. So they're meeting. Maybe he wants to go to the Lakers to play with him. Always looked like Draymond wanted to play for the Lakers. He's a free agent for Van Fleet. Gary Trent returns to the Raptors. Siakam and Ananobi both have a year left on their deals. Do either of them get moved this offseason? But I also read a piece this week where it was a quote, Raptors management believe they're not that far off from the Miami Heat in the East. <laughs> well, you lost in the playing game to the Bulls. So you would have had to beat the Bulls then to play the Heat to get going. So again, are the Raptors close? No, it's delusion. They want their fan base to think they're close and they're not. Boot on the Toronto Raptors for a hard sell. The NBA draft is tomorrow night. We'll talk about it more tomorrow on the program. It looks like we know the first three picks. Victor Wambanyama, the obvious one, will be going to the San Antonio Spurs, number one overall. All reports say that Brandon Miller will be going number two to the Charlotte Hornets. So he'll be going, he's out of Alabama. And the third pick, made by Portland, will be Scoot Henderson, who played in the G League this season.
With the NBA drafts, always fun. Maybe we get a big deal. Maybe Damian Lillard gets traded from Portland prior to the draft. They add a piece. Zion Williamson get traded over the next couple of weeks away from New Orleans, everything he's dealing with. We shall see. But lots of tidbits, lots of juicy drama in the association right now. Let's pivot to the NHL. The NHL draft is a week tonight. A week from tonight in Nashville, the NHL awards is on Monday, which again, doing it after the season where everybody forgets about the regular season. Don't like that idea. Just announce them like the NBA does. But they're doing an event in Nashville. I think it's on Sportsnet. I'm sure somebody will watch it. I'll find out who they win via my Twitter timeline. But again, that's just yours truly. The Vancouver Canucks. They're doing some cleanup, aren't they? The Vancouver Canucks are... They are such a fascinating organization. Because they like to make things complicated. They like to do stupid things. And they have been an organization that has that has just done some crazy things over the last number of years. Truly. I just I look at this team and I wonder Where was this? Where were? What were they thinking at points in time? Remember the three-year contracts they gave out to fourth-line center. They gave one to Anton Roussel, and then they gave one to Jay Beagle, and they gave one to Curtis Lazar, all in the same year. And all three of them are off the roster now. Jay Beagle no longer plays in the National Hockey League. I don't know if Anton Roussel plays in it. I don't think he does. Curtis Lazar barely still plays in the NHL. He's on the fringe. They gave three-year deals to all those gentlemen. At the same time, they all did the same thing. Then there's they had to trade. They pulled off moves. They had Brandon Sutter. He was signed long-term. They had to buy him out. It's been a mess. The Bruce Boudreaux debacle, bringing in Rick Tockett, missing out on potential, getting Conor Bedard to go home. I could keep going. But there was also this move they made where they traded for Oliver Ekman Larson. Oliver Ekman Larson's the former captain of the Arizona Coyotes. At one point was one of the best defensemen in the NHL. He he was phenomenal. Eight, 25 minutes a night, did everything you'd want, but he was never, I would say he was always on the second, he wasn't an elite defenseman, but he was very good. But he's going through Arizona, he's been through some injuries, his play is dipping, and the Canuck clearly thought he's playing in Arizona, he's got no motivation, let's trade for him. So in 2021, the Canucks acquired Ekman Larson for Connor Garland, who they then re-signed, and they now regret, for forwards Louis Erickson, there's for Louis Erickson, Jay Beagle, another one of their dumb salaries. Antoine Roussel, Arizona also received the number one I picked that year, used to select Dylan Gunther, a second round pick in 2022, and a seventh round pick in 2023. So 
The best thing acquired in that trade, in my opinion, he's played a few NHL games, is Dylan Gunther. Saw him play at the Memorial Cup. I've seen him play live at the World Juniors. He's got a hell of a shot. He's got a hell of a future. But the thing is, Ekman Larson was brought on. He still had, I think, seven years left on his contract at that time. And it was a mammoth contract brought into a team that didn't have a whole lot of cap room. They didn't re-sign Connor Garland to a five-times-five deal, and they can't trade him. Nobody wants him, too much money, so that's a problem. So just two years after Ekman Larson was acquired, he had four years and $29 million remaining on an eight-year, $66 million contract he signed with Arizona in 2018. The Canucks have bought him out. In a release, the Canucks said they'll pay the Swedish defenseman $19.33 million over the next eight years. If the team had retained Ekman Larson, he would have been paid a total of $18.5 million over the next two years alone, Elvin said. So this makes sense. It makes sense to buy out Oliver Ekman Larson because he's not a good player. But that's besides the point to me. It's about making decisions. And then you're trying to cover them up, by, and this is how you do it. So there's this if you if you're on Twitter, go on. It's a it's called Puckpedia. It's a good it's a good thing. You also go on Cap Friendly. But Canucks buyout carries uh, buyout carries a cap hit of year one. So this year, 147 thousand. So not much on a team that's not very good. Year two, 2.35 million, 4.9 million dollars in savings. Year three and four, 4.77 million, 2.5 million savings. In years five to eight, 2.13 cap it and cost. So it makes it seem like the Canucks are being smart here. We bought out Ekman Larson. We're saving the money. We're saving money. We can compete. Okay. But it's also at the same time, you got to look on your books every year and say, we got to pay this guy until 20. 31, I believe. I just want to make sure I get this right. 2031. And you got to face a cap hit every year because you made this stupid trade. He gets a fresh start. He gets to go, he gets to make money, maybe get a one-year deal somewhere, see if he can still play. But this is a grift from teams and what they do is we're saving money. It's actually smarter for us to do this. It is not. How about don't make the trade in the first place? Ekman Larson, who <laughs> here's another guy that had a full no move because Arizona, why not? I mean, nobody wants to be there other than him. So let's give him one. He gets a full no move and he would not go to certain. He would only go to Vancouver he, I think he had like three teams on his list. Vancouver was one of them. He decided Vancouver is okay for all of Ekman Larson, and he got to control his own destiny. <laughs> Why? I'll never understand giving them out like you give out Clementines at a, a t-ball game for eight-year-old kids. But Oliver Ekman Larson was a horrible contract by Arizona was a horrible decision for a trade by the Vancouver Canucks, and it's been an absolute disaster since they acquired him. Is their team better because he's off it? Sure. 
but you're also going to be put in a situation where the Vancouver Canucks don't want to be competitive this year because they're not ready to be. But let's say in two, three years when they are, you got cap charges that will hurt your chances of spending to the cap and being as good as you can be. In three years, they have $4.77 million in dead cap. Meaning that's money you can't spend. It's basically against your cap. You can't do anything with it. It's like Minnesota right now with Parisi and with Suter. You have money every year that you look at. Okay, if we can spend $85 million, Vancouver could only spend 80 basically, 81 because that, that the rest is gone. So it makes a difference. And it's a grift that the Vancouver Canucks are saying, okay, we're, we're smarter. Look at all our savings. Yes, but at the same time, you are not saving the team because you are going to hurt the team in the long run. Ekman Larson has had a bad... He's, people have talked about his just his situation and the way he speaks, and he's kind of had a, an attitude that was better than most teams since he got into the league. I think he liked Arizona because of the weather and multiple things, but he's been, he was a pain in the ass the entire time he was in Vancouver. And now he's gone. He was always there in their defense, a bad defense core with, with Quinn Hughes who had to overcompensate and do too much. I think this allows the Vancouver Canucks to be a little more aggressive in free agency. Again, only 147,000 and get dead cap this year. But do I think the Vancouver Canucks are a team that can contend for Stanley Cup this year? No. They'll be lucky to contend for a playoff spot if they even get there. What are they doing with Thatcher Demko? Is he coming back? Is he available? He was rumored all of the last year that he was on the market. Is are they still going to try to trade JT Miller, who they almost had a deal with at the trade deadline last year for him to head to Pittsburgh? Brock Bester still on the trade block for the fourth straight year. I don't think this team has a whole lot of cohesion. And that's on Rick Tockett to build a culture and build a winner there. Because I just think it's been a losing view in Vancouver for a long time. Since the Sedins left, there hasn't been a whole lot of success. Hasn't been a whole lot of positive vibes in Vancouver. You go through GMs, you go through head coaches. Now you have Jim Rutherford, who's controlling the puppet strings. while Patrick Alvin, the GM, basically does whatever the hell he says. He might be the GM in title, but he doesn't have any he doesn't have any control. He may as well be Kyle Dubas's next GM. You know, whoever it will be will just do what Kyle says. I don't think that's a fun position to be in. But Jim Rutherford's the legend, and you gotta listen to what he says. You just do what that's the job. The way Travis Greener's fired, the way they handled Bruce Boudreaux, I don't think any of these were good. Mid-season firings, and just you look convoluted. You don't look like you know what you're doing. 
Dmitry Orlov is the best defenseman available in the UFA market. I could see Vancouver throwing a lot of money at him. I'm not saying I'd pay him a whole bunch of money because I think teams will because he's the best one available. But it's something that I think teams will overpay because he's the best thing available. And Vancouver loves to overspend. They love to do it. They did it with Ekman Larson on the trade. They signed, like I said, Brandon Sutter. Giving that deal to JT Miller with all the years and all the – and again, one year does not define a career, but a lot of teams believe that it does. And that's what gets them in trouble is overreacting to one situation or looking at your team saying, we need to do something. We need to panic. Let's trade for this player who isn't right for us, but he will help. On the rumor mill today, it's based Darren Dreger's reporting that the Winnipeg Jets very well could buy out Blake Wheeler. 36-year-old, former captain of the team, and the Winnipeg Jets are in an interesting position where they will be the, the most interesting team to watch over the next three weeks. They buy, if they buy out Blake Wheeler, does Mark Shifley return? What do they do with Kyle Connor? Connor Hellebuck, one year left on his deal. He's more than likely to be traded. Darren Dreger reports a buyout is an option for the Jets in Wheeler. He adds that the team has received some trade interest in the 36-year-old winger and continue to work through the process. The NHL's buyout window opened last week and will close on June 30th. Wheeler has one year remaining on his contract at the cap hit of $8.25 million. A buyout would clear $5.5 million in cap space for the Jets in the upcoming season while leaving a cap charge of $2.75 million. Based on what we just talked about with Oliver Ekman Larson, if the Jets cannot trade him, they will buy out Blake Wheeler. It only makes sense financially. It's one year you will save a whole lot of money. You will save a whole lot of money in cap space, so they will do it. If I am a team and I know Blake Wheeler is going to be bought out and I have interest, I am not trading for him because I don't want $8.25 million coming onto my team. So if I had to guess, I think Blake Wheeler will be bought out over the next couple of weeks before June 30th. I think that's tough for the Winnipeg Jets because you have a captain, think he's really liked in Winnipeg, but you need to do it. He's 36. He's not the player he used to be. And quite frankly, the Winnipeg Jets are in a different position here. Because if Blake Wheeler is gone, if Mark Shifley leaves the team, if Pierre-Luc Dubois is traded this offseason because he wants to play in Montreal, if Connor Hellebuck is traded, that is a rebuild. Unless you're making hockey trades coming back, which are tough to do in all these situations, you are signaling to the rest of the league, we are in tank mode, we want high draft picks. We want the next wave of talent in the NHL, and that's where we're headed. Which wouldn't be a bad thing for the Winnipeg Jets because they've been mediocre for a long time. And they've just been spinning their wheels, not having much traction, and having the same result year after year after year. So I think that's the correct, astute choice is to say, you know what? 
let's make a change here. Let's do something different. Let's pivot. Connor Hellebuck is an interesting, I'm going to do over the next couple days, talk about the best fits for him because it has to be a trade as well. And, you know, kind of pros and cons of where teams should be looking at Connor Hellebuck. I'm going to write that down right now. That's a good little thing to put on tomorrow's show. Where Connor Hellebuck, the best situations for him. And why teams should either be or not be interested in Connor Hellebuck. Because I think he brings a lot to the table. I think he's an interesting player. He's one of the best goalies in the world. But you know if you trade for him, you're either going in all in for one year, and you're taking a swing, or you're going to have to re-sign him when you trade for him in all likelihood and pay a lot for him, which would scare the hell out of me. Quite frankly, with Connor Hellebuck, I'd rather take the one-year gamble than sign him for a seven-year deal at 30. Because I don't want to pay a 37-year-old goaltender nine million bucks, eight, eight and a half, whatever it's going to be. I was having these discussions with my father the other day, and he's a Leaf fan. And you always try to figure out what a player is going to want when they hit free agency or when they're negotiating. If I look at Connor Hellebuck, we weren't talking. We'll talk about the player that we were discussing. But Connor Hellebuck has won a Vesna. He's been nominated two or three times. He's been a, one of the best goalies in the world for the last decade. He, by his resume. What he just did this past year is worthy of an eight plus million dollar salary. He is. Would I want to give that to him? No, but is he worthy of it? Yes, and teams will because goalies are scarce and it's the most important position in the sport. So Connor Hellebuck is a goalie. Goalies, people don't like to pay goalies for whatever reason. It's opposite to quarterbacks. When you have a great quarterback, you don't mind spending big money on them because you need them. They're the most important position. But people don't like spending big money on goaltenders. Vasilevsky is the rarity. He's the, the freak. He's Vash. He's the best goaltender in the world. But Brossi got a big deal. Carey Price obviously had one in La Belle Provence. But they're very few and far between. But if you don't want to pay a goalie, who's had that type of success. How do you, what's the correlation between a great goaltender and say a 40 goal score? And this was what I was talking about with my father. He, obviously, Lee fan, we, he, you know, he loves talking about the Leafs with me. Well, I don't know if he does because every time he talks about them, I discredit his arguments. And I think I leave the conversations right, but that's another story for another day. I, Truly believe that when William Nylander hits free agency, he will be asking for $10 million plus. I will be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll pay my, I bet my dad a hundred bucks. He didn't accept the bet, but I'll do it because I'll, I, I proposed it and I'll be wrong. 
But I don't see a situation where a player scores 40 goals. He's been the team's best player in the playoffs. And you look at the salaries around the league and you say, okay, 40 goal scorer on this, that, and the third, I'm not going to get this salary. Okay, I'm not David Pasternak, but am I who, – who's my comparable now? The players I was compared to are soaring in salaries. Cole Caulfield makes over eight. I'm better than Cole Caulfield. Cole Caulfield's barely taking a piss in the league. He's making that much money. I'm worth more than him. So that that's the interesting conversation is where these where these salaries come together and where they what what's the what's the reasoning but you know what why does this player make this why what is this position worth more why does a winger make 10 million dollars and yet a goalie you're you're afraid to give him five and a half it's fascinating and if william elander wants 10 million bucks the least probably have to trade him so the least core four may be broken up because of greed but is it, is it really greed? It's not greed because that's what he's worth. That is what his play has dictated, that you are worth this much money. Another team might pay it, but that does not mean you're greedy. It does not mean you don't want to win. That just means you are in the, you're in the pocket. You're trying to win here. But I'll talk about the Connor Hellebuck situation tomorrow because he's he's a fascinating case of where he could go, where does he fit. We'll discuss that tomorrow on the show. Other news today, Buffalo Sabres. Kevin Adams announced today defenseman Rasmus Dallin and Owen Power both have a year left on their contracts. But general manager Kevin Adams said Wednesday he's in talks to extend both this summer. They're working on extensions. Darlene's entering the final season of a three-year $18 million deal with a cap of $6 million. That's going to go up. And to think of this, he's only 23, Rasmus Darlene. Feels like he's been in the league forever. He's 23 years old. Owen Power's 20. You know how I feel about Owen Power. The dude is a stud of studs. I think he's he's a lock to win a Norris Trophy before his before his career is over. He is so damn good. The club Buffalo's got a lot of. They have five players signed through at least 2025, 2026. Jeff Skinner, Tage Thompson, <coughs> excuse me, Dylan Cousins, Alex Tuck, and Matias Sandelson. So, I think both those defensemen would be great to come back. You'd have. Darlene, Samuelson, and Power locked up long-term on the back end. Three really good defensemen. I think you'd have close to two number ones in Darlene and and Owen Power. You can hope that Devin Levi can turn into your goaltender of the future. I think the the Buffalo Sabres are going to be a player quick. I really believe that because they have a whole lot of options. They may trade Victor Olofsson because they just can't afford to pay him, and he's a good goal scorer, and he'll have a lot of value across the league. There's rumors of that the other day. 
she can score 30 to 40 goals a season, get some pieces back in return. But I like the Buffalo Sabres roster a hell of a lot. I like their coach. I love Owen Power. Darlene is a stud. Tage Thompson is skilled, personified. Dylan Cousins, 30-goal season, his second year in the league. This team is on the come up. This team is going to make way for the Bruins who are getting older, for maybe Tampa who take a step back for an injury plague. Florida Panthers team going into next season. Look out for the Buffalo Sabres. They are ahead of the Ottawa Senators in the rebuilds, in the reconstruction of building a contender. They are head and shoulders above Ottawa. And for obvious reasons. Anything else in the NHL? Still before we get off, I do want to talk coaches briefly here. But Buffalo re-signed Zemgis Gergensens, one of their leaders on their team. He's a from Latvia. He's only played for the Buffalo Sabres during his career. Two point five million on a one-year deal. He's twenty-nine. Played eighty games last year. 18 points. He's played in 625 NHL games, all for the Sabres, and he was an all-star in 2015. So that's a good that's a good signing for them. We'll also get into the NHL draft next week. And this afternoon, the Hockey Hall of Fame class will be announced. Now, here are the locks for me, and I don't think they should be. Henrik Lundqvist, he's a great goalie. Should he be a first ballot? Just obvious. One Stanley Cup final, never won a Vesna, six all-time in wins. He's really good, don't get me wrong, he is. But is he a lock first ballot? I'm not so sure. Other names, Alexander McGinley has been eligible for the Hall since 2009, but has yet to receive the call. He had 473 goals and 1,032 points in his 990 NHL games. He ranks fourth all-time amongst Russian-born players in points behind the grade eight, Malkin, and Fedorov. He's one of 30 members of the Triple Gold Club, winning a Stanley Cup, Olympic gold medal, World Championship gold medal. To me, McGinley has as good a case as Henrik Lundqvist. I mean, he's been eligible since 2009. Lundqvist, again, great player, but is it a lock for me? No, it isn't. JR, Jeremy Roenick is a polarizing player. He's a Hall of Famer to me. He's a Hall of Famer. You might not like what he's like off the ice, but what he's done in his life, what he's done playing the game of hockey, to me, his personality, everything everything he did on the ice was trying to win. I love JR. To me, he's a Hall of Famer. Curtis Joseph's been eligible for a long time. Patrick Ilyash. And for the women's side, Carolyn Ouellette. She'll be she's hundred percent going in, which I'm fine with. She was one of the best Canadian women's hockey players. One of the best Canadian hockey players of all time, you could argue, with her resume at Olympic Games and World Championships. So if I had to guess on who is going into it, Lundqvist will go in. Even though I don't think he's a, a lock, first ballot, he will go in. Zetterberg's all of Corey Crawford's not a Hall of Famer. I don't think Zetterberg's Hall of Famer either. 
I'm going to say McGinley goes in. We'll compare this list tomorrow, see how right and how wrong I am. Carolyn Ouellette is going to go in. There's also Keith Kachuk. Keith Kachuk is a Hall of Famer. I'm going to say Walt, which is Keith Kachuk. I'm going to go JR. So, Henrik Lundqvist, Alexander McGinley, Carolyn Ouellette, Keith Kachuk, and Jeremy Roenick. Those are my names. That's who I think will go in today. I'll probably be wrong, as I usually am. But I look at the names. Lundqvist is loved. He'll go in, obviously. To me, Zetterberg is a, was a great player. He's not a Hall of Famer. Might be a tough opinion. I just don't think he is. Really good player. It's not a Hall of Famer. Corey Crawford, not even, no, not a Hall of Famer. McGinley, yes. To me, he is. Ronick is. Cujo, right there. Eliash, not a, not a Hall of Famer to me. So... We'll see. It's always Hall of Fame is always an interesting debate. It's always it's always about the people that don't get in more than the people that get in right away, which creates good debate. I think that's at three p.m. this afternoon. That's announced. So I'm looking forward to see who does and doesn't get in, so we can talk about it tomorrow on the program. So that that's that'll be interesting to uh, to chalk it up and see. Who is going into the Hockey Hall of Fame? Because it's a, it's a huge accomplishment, obviously. It's a career achievement and puts you into some rarefied air. That's that's for sure. Before we move off the NHL, Sheldon Keefe, it sure looks like he'll be back as the Leafs head coach. They're hiring assistants right now. He's got. It's interesting because he's got one year left. I think they're going to want to sign him to an extension. Well, they're going to have to because I don't see them going through another season with a lame duck. They did that with Kyle Dubas. I don't think they'll do it with Sheldon Keith. And if you're going to sign him, it's not going to be the one-year deal, in my opinion. It's not going to be a one-year extension. If I'm Sheldon Keith, I'm not signing a one-year extension. Let me play out the last year of my contract. If I get to UFA status, then let's see if other teams reach out to me. And... Then I can see what's out there, see what see what teams are available. I think he wants to coach Toronto Maple Leafs. He's from Ontario, this set and third. Just but again, tribalism. Just because you're from a province doesn't mean you have to stay there forever. If there's more money to go coach another team, and it's just as interesting as the Toronto Maple Leafs job. As it's crazy that it might seem to some people out there, he'll take it, just like Kyle Dubas did. Kyle Dubas might have said in his speech at Brock or Ryerson, where the hell he was, that he got fired by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Incorrect. He he fired the Leafs because he knew the Penguins are around the corner with a better title, more money. They didn't fire him. He decided, I don't want to be here anymore. As much as he loved Toronto and he loved the people, he said, I can take the people I like from this place and go somewhere else. Let's do that. I'll take Jason Spezza with me. We're going to go work in Pittsburgh. 
Because guess what, Jason? You're going to get a better title, AGM, in Pittsburgh. I'm going to get a better title, president, and more money to go this other place. Even though Toronto, I, I love it so much, and it was the best part of my life, this wham, whack, hey, bullshit, bullshit. Just you move on. That's what you do. Looks like Sheldon Key's going to be back. I think the Leafs were interested in hiring Travis Green as an assistant, but he's going to New Jersey. He will be an assistant coach to Lindy Ruff. He's taking Andrew Burnett's position. So he's back on an NHL bench. He'll be an assistant coach with the New Jersey Devils as they try to continue to get better. They'll have to re-sign Timo Meyer. They re-signed Jesper Bratt to an eight-year, $63 million contract. They got a good team already. I'd like to see them get a little bit bigger. And you had another smart mind behind the bench of New Jersey. I Travis Green is, is a good hire and a good guy to sit there and wait with Lindy Ruff. But again, Hockey Hall of Fame. We'll talk about Connor Hellebuck tomorrow and any other interesting notes in and around the NHL world. Let's move to the UFC. Where the UFC... I think matchmaking in the UFC has been pretty great over the last little while. They've made some interesting fights. But something I don't think they've really thought about all that much is what they're doing in the middleweight division. The middleweight division is 185 pounds and the current champion Israel Adesanya. Is he one of the best fighters in the history of the promotion? He is sitting there looking for a fight, and he's slated to fight September 10th in Sydney, Australia, at UFC 293. Here's the thing. He doesn't have an opponent yet, which is strange to not have an opponent. It's going to be two months out from a fight. Now, what Dana White said earlier this spring, which happy summer, by the way, he said earlier this spring that there's going to be a fight in July, UFC 290, between Dricus Duplessis and former middleweight champion Robert Whitaker. And the winner of that fight will fight Israel Adesanya for the title later in the year. Well, it's later been talked about. They want Izzy on the Sydney card. He lives in New Zealand, lives in Australia half the year. It will do big numbers. Here's the problem with that, folks. UFC 290 is on July 8th. UFC 293 is on September 10th. That is a two-month turnaround to get back into the cage, to be in shape, this, that, and the other, and prepare for a title fight against, you could argue, the best middleweight of all time. Robert Whitaker has fought Israel Adesanya twice already and lost both fights. With a full camp preparing, not two months quick turnaround, Drickus Duplessis has not lost in his UFC career yet, but he's been through injuries. He usually gets banged up after fights. To, to have him ready in two months is not going to happen. The other problem here is that Robert Whitaker is going to be a massive favorite, massive betting favorite in this fight. And I think he is going to smoke Trickus Duplessis, which is not what Izzy wants. And I don't think it's not what the UFC wants. They do not want another Whitaker versus Adesanya fight. We've seen two of them. And Izzy has won both comfortably. He knocked out Rob in the first. And he beat him by decision in February 
of 2022. So where do we go from here? What happens next? If these two guys beat the hell out of each other, who is Israel going to fight? Well, this past weekend, we saw Marvin Vittori and Jared Canier fight at the Apex. Five-round win event. And Canier landed the most significant strikes in a middleweight fight in the history of the UFC. The 39-year-old looked spry, dominated Marvin Vittori, completely pressed forward, was not afraid to engage, and he beat a really game Marvin Vittori to leap him into third in the middleweight rankings. Here's the problem. Jared Kanier's already fought for the title. He fought Izzy back in July of 2022. It was a five-round fight, and it was a no contest. It was Izzy did whatever he wanted. Jared did not land any big strikes. He was not aggressive, and it was a boring main event to International Fight Week's main event pay-per-view fight. I don't think Izzy wants to fight Jared again because he's beat him so easily. I don't think UFC wants to book it again. So that's not going to happen. Obviously, Marvin Vittori just lost. He's going to be fighting for the belt. Also, he's fought Izzy twice, lost both times. Paulo Costa has fought Izzy once. You could do that fight again, but he's slated to fight in the end of July in Salt Lake City, Utah. That's not happening. Sean Strickland, he's fighting in two weeks in uh, July 1st at the apex, does that make sense? Is that the fight that makes sense for, for Izzy? They've never fought before. It would be a fresh fight. It'd be three, you know, a, a couple extra, a week more to prepare for that fight for Sean to come back and fight in Sydney, Australia. Again, not an easy turnaround, but maybe it makes more sense if he takes less damage in his fight than he does in the Drickus Rob Whitaker fight. What else does the UFC have? What other interesting fights can they put on? That's the problem here. Hamzat Chemaev, we don't know anything about him. What we do know is that he's going to be fighting in, in Abu Dhabi. He might not be allowed in the United States. If he can't go to the United States, he can't fight in Vegas. That I know definitively. But he's fought what Izzy's fought Whitaker twice, beat him. He fought Canadier, beat him. Fought Vittori twice, beat him. Hasn't fought Drickish yet. Beat Paulo Costa, hasn't fought Strickland, beat Derek Brunson. I could go through these names and it just gets lighter and lighter. So who is he going to fight? The UFC made a mistake in booking Robert Whitaker and Drickish Tupo. See, I understand it. Robert Whitaker wins so many fights that it only makes sense for him to get title opportunities. Because if Izzy didn't exist, he would be the best middleweight in the world. And he's still regarded as one of the best fighters in the UFC. Izzy is a horrible style matchup for him. Izzy is so tall, he's so long and lanky that it's hard to land strikes on him. And Robert has to take huge risks to just get in positions to hurt Israel Adesanya. Drakus Duplessis and Izzy have beef. It's bad. It's beef that is uncomfortable to talk about. Drakus is from South Africa. 
And he said that Israel, who was born in Nigeria, is not a real African because he left and he, he just he lives in New Zealand now. And it's really uncomfortable. There's a lot of race relations there. But the two guys don't like one another. The fight has momentum. The fight has some interest because of the beef. But the UFC books this fight before and you're like, why? Why do you book this fight as the third fight in UFC 290 when Izzy could have been fighting Drickus in Sydney in a main event that would have been huge? I just think there's a dilemma. Who is he going to fight? To expect either guy to come back in two months and fight Izzy, I don't see it happening. So they bump Israel off this card altogether. And they book Jamal Hill and Yuri Prohaska. We haven't heard anything about the 205-pound division in months. Do they become the main event of that pay-per-view? But then the problem is, where do you put Izzy? Where is Izzy fighting? Is he fighting in Abu Dhabi? Unlikely. Islam's going to main event, likely against Charles Oliveira. Or potentially Alex Volkanovski. I'm not ruling that out yet. So if Islam's main eventing that one, is he fighting at the Garden? John Jones is supposed to fight at the Garden in November. Now, you never know with John. So you could put Izzy on ice. Izzy likes fighting at the Garden. He lost there last year. Maybe get some vengeance in New York. But he could fight at the Garden. He could certainly main event that card against Drickus or Rob's winner. But is he going to main event the, the, the card in December? Is that going to be the Conor McGregor card? But again, is, is he in USADA? His team sucks in the Ultimate Fighter. He's 0-4. I mean, this just... I think the UFC, this is just bad matchmaking because it makes your life so much harder. And I do think that if Drickus somehow defeats Robert Whitaker, he will come back and say, I'll fight in September because it's for a world title. Because it's for something I've always wanted and I'll take the chance and I'll recover quick and do whatever I have to do. But are you going to beat Israel Adesanya on that quick arrest? Unlikely. Unlikely that you can come back and beat him. Good luck, but I don't see it happening. Because I know Izzy wants to fight. He never wants to rest. He just wants to keep fighting. But he's had to wait because they booked these certain events. And he's not happy about it either. And I don't think he wants to fight Sean Strickland. Because I don't think he think, believes Sean Strickland deserves a title opportunity. And I don't blame him. He could have fought Alex Pereira as well. But Pereira is now at 205. So you're just you're out of options. You're out of options for the middleweight division, and that's a problem. That's certainly a problem. But it's interesting. If Jake, Jerry Cannonier had not fought for the belt, then you would have a fight. So that would make sense. But he has, and he put up a really bad showing. A really bad showing that nobody wants to see that again. So you're like, shit. What do we do now? Fights announced the last couple days. UFC Nashville, which is shaping up to be a great card. Corey Sanhagen is going to be fighting Umar Namagomedov. Sanhagen's coming off a huge dominant win over Marlon Chito Vera. 
he is fighting Umar Nurmagomedov, who is undefeated in UFC, who is currently ranked tenth. So it's a big, it's a big risky fight for Sanhagen. He's gotten better and better in the bantamweight division since his loss to Aljamain Sterling. But Sanhagen versus Umar, I think Cheeto Vera versus Umar would have made more sense, but they're going with Sanhagen against Umar. Good for Sanhagen for taking the fight. A really fun main event. UFC Singapore, end of August. Max Holloway returns to the cage, fresh off his big win over Arnold Allen. He'll be fighting the Korean Zombie. These two guys have been in the UFC a long time in the featherweight division. They finally get to match up one another. Likely Zombie's last fight. Max Holloway is a massive betting favorite heading into this fight. But again, Holloway doesn't have a whole lot of fights that make sense at 145 because he's beaten everybody and he's lost a bulk so many times so he can't fight for the title anymore. So now he gets Zombie in Singapore, a fight that he wanted. And then beginning of September, the UFC returns to Paris. Once again, it was awesome last year. Great card, great fans. Sergey Spivak, a rising contender in the heavyweight division, will fight Paris's own Cyril Gaon. This will be Gaon's first fight since losing to John Jones in March in that no-show performance. We'll see what he, if he can rebound, if he can find his just find his level head, get back into the swing of things. He's had two title fights that have not gone his way already in his UFC career. Spivak, nicknamed the Polar Bear, is a grappler. He's going to want to get Cyril gone to the ground, try to submit him. We'll see what Cyril can do. He had a tough time against Francis Ngannou, who's not a wrestler, in doing that in his other title fight. His other win was against, obviously, tied to Ivasa, who's a striker. So I'm curious to see how Gon reacts to this fight, how he comes in and competes. Because to me, he's got to earn a couple victories at the very least to get back into title contention because he's had two opportunities and both fights have been there for him and he's let them slip away. I think you look for Gon is going to fight US Tom Aspinall. who will be fighting this in July against uh, Marcin Tabura. Aspinall is still a rising contender in the heavyweight division. I think he's a future world champion of everything. He's going the same if his injury history goes away. So we'll see what happens there. But another interesting fight, to say the least, in the heavyweight division. All those three main events are fun. Then we got UFC 292 in Boston. Dana White's backyard. He's propping up this card. And it's... The main event is Aljamain Sterling and Sugar Sean O'Malley, which will be lots of fun. Lots of hatred there. Two guys that don't like each other. Women's strawweight also is on that card for the strawweight championship. Zhang Wei Li and Amanda Lamos. Chris Weidman makes his return over two-year break against Brad Tavares. Jeff Neal was announced fighting Ian Gary. Ian Gary, surging welterweight contender, undefeated. Jeff Neal is the gatekeeper of the division. Only makes sense for him to fight him. You get Cody Garbrandt, no love, fighting on that card, the former champion. And also announced two fights on that card. Mar uh, Henry Cejudo against Marlon Chito Vera. So Cejudo, who fought in May, will return quick. He'll fight Chito. 
the same night that Sterling is, is fighting, so the same division, and Rob Font will be fighting Song Yadong that night as well in another in another Bantamweight fight. So a huge Bantamweight night for for that pay-per-view. And yeah, Rob Font and Song Yadong are both seventh and eighth respectively. Cheeto Vera is sixth in the rankings currently. Cejudo is third. You have Sanhagen who's fighting just a few weeks prior. So that division is getting a lot of action this summer. Still look at it. Dominic Cruz has not fought in a while. He, I heard him interviewed. He said he wants to fight this summer in all likelihood. Who will fight? I don't know. Pedro Munoz will be a fun fight against Dominic Cruz. There's Adrian Yanez. I just think for for Dom, there isn't a whole lot of names that would probably excite him. Rob Font would have been probably a fun fight for him. Those two good style matchup. Maybe goes up against Chris Gutierrez. Could move up to featherweight potentially, but again, some some interesting names for the UFC and some interesting fights that they've made over the next couple weeks. UFC's in Jacksonville this weekend. We'll tee that up more and more as we go throughout the week. We'll talk more about Major League Baseball and Shohei Otani and just what the hell he's doing, which is just some incredible stuff. The Blue Jays are currently leading 5-2 over the Marlins in the fifth inning. The Rays have a 4-1 lead over the Baltimore Orioles. The Cincinnati Reds are down 3 now. They've won 10 in a row. So they're looking to keep that going. Tonight, Mariners, Yankees, Braves are red hot. They're playing the Phillies. Braves have just caught fire. Dodgers, Angels, Shohei Otani is on the mound for the Angels at Angels Stadium this evening. So we'll talk more baseball as we go throughout the week. We'll talk about Connor Hellebuck tomorrow and uh, what teams make sense for him and what teams do not. React to the Hockey Hall of Fame. we got the NBA draft tomorrow night. So we'll chat about that and a bunch of other things tomorrow on this fine program. Thank you all for tuning in today. Glad to be back. Talk to you tomorrow. Just to the point.